everyone let's call a timeout this podcast is proudly sponsored by the medical indemnity protection society the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students it's free to become a student member for more information regarding mips student membership please visit qr.mips.com.au hi everybody welcome to the timeout my name's Ganesh, and i'm joined today by mr navid alam consultant thoracic surgeon at St. Vincent's Hospital and the Epworth, who's trained in Canada and New York, and who is a very keen surgical educator for our junior surgeons. Welcome to the show, Naveed, and thanks for being here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Same here, actually, because um, we've heard a lot about you. Now, Naveed, let's start with your specialty. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? What do you do exactly? Certainly. So um, I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon with a niche focus on thoracic surgery. So I haven't done cardiac surgery since my training. And so the main focus of my uh, operations and my practice would be around lung cancer. So non-cardiac thoracic surgery. So um, we do uh, thymomas, mesothelioma, uh, lung cancer is a big thing. And then there's also infectious uh, processes in the chest, uh, trauma. So that's the, the main focus of it. And before delving into a little bit more about this later on during the show, um, we'd like to start to move on to some warm-up questions. Later. Sure. Right, Naveed. Dogs or cats? <laughs> I'm more of a people person, I think. People. <laughs> yeah, they tend to be quite enjoyable to hang out with. They're my favorite animals. <laughs> All right. Um, what's your dream car, do you think? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I'm a big, big fan of Ferraris. Um, and uh, currently, I have my eye, I would love to have a 458, which is a mid engine, the last of the naturally aspirated uh, Ferraris with a, a convertible. I think that would be that would be great. Yeah, we had heard about your interesting cars. Um, I'm a big fan myself. So lovely to start off with that. All right. Um, next thing, what's your favorite thing about the thorax? It's when you go through any uh, situation in medicine, it's airway, breathing, circulation, the first three things. And that's the thorax. A, B, C, that's what we operate on. We operate on the trachea, we operate on the lungs, we operate on the heart, all the biggest blood vessels in the body, all right there. It's where all the action happens, it's exciting. Yeah, it does appear to be the center of everything and we're lucky to have you, you know, helping the world fix them. Do you play music in the operating theater or not? So this is funny. Um, I don't. And I think that um, probably like a lot of surgeons, I'm not very good at multitasking. So I'm quite good at doing one thing. And what I find is, and I didn't realize this, but I generally have a soundtrack going in my head anyway. And I often sing and hum in theater. And I didn't realize this, but when we were having register handover a few years ago, the outgoing registrar told the incoming registrar that if Naveed is singing, you can be confident and comfortable. It's just easy sailing. It's like opening and closing. It's relaxed. If he starts humming, you need to focus. And if he's quiet, that's the intense part of the surgery. And you need to really make sure you're paying attention. And so I think that's why I don't play music in theaters because I can't control it to turn it off when I need to. Yeah. And like we were talking about driving before, I do uh, race a little bit. 
as well on tracks. And when you're racing, you never want music on in the car. Like you, music is in the car when you're in traffic, but if you're driving quickly, I always turn the radio off or if I'm on a track where all its radio is always off. That's the same idea. I think I'm not very good at multitasking. I want to keep my focus on the task at hand right in front of me. Yeah, well, that is so impressive um, getting to know that, you know, there is this track that guides everything you do in your life. Amazing, Naveed. Um, and speaking about your life, what does a typical day in it look like these days? Well, so there's two, there's these days in the Corona situation, which is uh, mm. uh, we're all have made great changes. And basically in one way, you wouldn't think that our operations had been uh, compromised in terms of our volumes, but they have, because everything we do more or less is category one. So it has to be done and wasn't considered elective. That being said, during the big lockdown, we were down, normally I would do eight to 10 operations a week and I was doing one or two. So down by about 75%. And that was mostly a function of people not having maybe elective surgery or going for a screening tests and having their incidental tumors picked up. Also people being very afraid. I had this sort of fear that people would be presenting to their GPs with a cough and then they'd get a swab and, oh, you don't have COVID. Meanwhile, their lung cancer is growing and I'm like, oh. Um, so these days it's, you know, pretty relaxed. Uh, there's not as much going on. Uh, I would get up. Um, my Usually I do elective surgery Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, get to theater, operate, and then Thursday and Friday I work for consulting. The nice uh, thing that would happen, say, pre-coronavirus is I travel a lot, both for, mostly for work. Um, I consult in, uh, in Launceston, so I fly to Tassie every couple of weeks for the day. That's a really valuable part of my practice and really enjoyable as well. Mm. It's just a 45-minute flight. And then internationally, I would be going, I would be going overseas every eight weeks, every couple of months uh, for either a conference or a course that we'd be that I'd be running or involved with. So that's all that was always a big part of it as well, a big part of the thoracic surgery life that I was leading. Yeah, amazing. And so although you mentioned that not in the operating theater, but are you listening to a reading anything at the moment that you would recommend? Sure. Uh, I read a lot and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm currently reading, I'm not sure if I'd recommend this, but <laughs> I'm reading. I, I usually read, so despite not being good at multitasking, I do read many books in parallel, but obviously only one at a time. Yeah. Uh, currently reading something called The Origins of um, the History and Origins of Consciousness, which is uh, written by Eric Newman, who was a student of Carl Jung's. So it's, um, it's written in the 40s, and it's kind of a fascinating take on how consciousness developed from an evolutionary biology standpoint and what it means uh, both for individuals and sort of as a group, uh, as, as humans in general, and tying that to mythology. It's fascinating. And I feel like I'm always intrigued with consciousness. It's the one sort of problem on the cusp of, I think, science and mysticism. It's, you can't, like the sort of, um, if you boil things down to electrons and quarks uh, and subatomic particles, you can't quite figure out where consciousness, how that comes into that. And that's, you know, this sort of, um, if you, and, and I, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I think there's a spiritual element in, in my thinking. And at somewhere, for some, for some reason, I find that consciousness really is that interface between sort of mysticism, spirituality, and, and, and science. And, 
and my, I did my undergraduate degree, and we'll get to that, but I did my undergraduate degree before medicine and physics. So I'm very oriented on that scientific uh, spectrum. And that's part of the reason that I find consciousness so fascinating. I'm like, I just don't get how, where it comes from when we're talking about electrons and charge transfer. Uh, so I'm reading that. And then I'm reading uh, another book called Unsettled, which is by uh, Stephen Koonin, who's a an environmental uh, scientist, a climate scientist. And it's basically a real deep dive into current climate science. This uh, guy was Obama's previous uh, science advisor uh, in the Obama administration. And so has very uh, credential uh, credential background in the in science in environmental science and it sort of looks at takes all the sort of topics that we hear about in the media like you know well, forest fires are raging and sea levels are rising and goes a little bit deeper into all that so that's that's fascinating I would actually encourage everyone to read that because I think climate change is the defining question of our time in terms of it's gonna have a huge impact on all of us. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the actual changing of the climate or the way the planet's gonna change is what's gonna affect us, but how we as humans are reacting to the perceived threat is gonna change us and it's gonna have very big implications for policy moving forward for all of us. Um, and so that's, I think it's, it's good to get a bit of background information so you can have an intelligent discussion and engage in the policy side of things. So I think that's another book that I'm reading. I'm read, reading a bit of fiction, um, Midnight's Children, Salman Rushdie. It's a very dense, dense read. I'm rereading that. Uh, the thing about reading Rushdie is that I like to think that I have a pretty good vocabulary, but I have to check a dictionary every second or third page when he, with his writing. You're humbled when you read Rushdie. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's, it's, it's very humbling. Read yeah. I love that. And you mentioned you listen to some podcasts as well, hopefully to the timeout as well. Um, but what <laughs> absolutely, of course. Um, you've had a few of my uh, colleagues and uh, even uh, one of my previous uh, students on, uh, Dr. Renu Eben. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, she, uh, she was a student that uh, spent some time with her teaching her. Uh, she's worked with us before. The, I'd say the, uh, the main podcasts I listen to are not, nothing medical, actually. I listen to um, this one called uh, uh, Econ Talk, which is an economics podcast, and it's been going since 2006. And it's this guy from Stanford who, fantastic um, uh, interviewer, and every, I think twice a week, he interviews someone who's just written a book in something which may be related primarily to economics, but it might be politics, history, something, and then he interviews them. And so it's really, gives you a, a really good exposure to a lot of interesting ideas. I think probably the best podcast, and some have said it's potentially the best podcast out there, yeah. is um, something called, it's, have you heard of Hardcore History? It's a, by a guy named Dan Carlin. Mm. And he is just an amazing uh, narrator. And he goes through, he doesn't interview, he just narrates history. So he has a series, he has different series. So like, you know, Fall of Roman Civilization, World War One, World War Two. um, uh, the as uh, you know Persian Empire things like that, and anyway, so for example, his podcast series on World War One is six episodes. Each one is between three and four hours. Wow! So you've got about twenty-four hours of just him talking about World War One. So you can imagine the detail and it's the stories that he goes into. So that's absolutely fascinating, and he's he's been 
ranked in some surveys as the best as the best podcast ever. Uh, so that's really interesting. Yeah, and I love probably the main. Yeah, I love how your interest, uh, as you said, not about medicine, because obviously you do, you know, practice and it is your life. Um, but it's also impressive how you how your passion for worldly things also helps to inform who you are as a person. So incredible, Naveed. And for a last question in terms of a warm up, um, is there a historical figure you would love to sit down with, have a chat to, and and why? That's a great question. Probably Churchill. Um, I find a nineteenth or sorry, twentieth century geopolitics fascinating, and all of that space and time around uh, World War One and World War Two. And Churchill was a key player in all of it. You know that you know he was sort of instrumental, and in, he was the um, supreme. I can't remember his title, but he was basically the top naval man in the UK around World War I. So he was responsible for sending the Anzacs to Gallipoli, which was, you know, probably one of the worst tactical decisions anyone's ever made. So it would be really interesting to hear um, his side of things. And also, you know, coming from the, the subcontinent, I've got a few bones to pick with him about how he handled uh, Indian troops in World yeah. War II. And so, yeah, and, and, and he's, you know, he's, he's a fascinating character. He's uh, He's responsible for so much of the world order that we have now. So I think, yeah, I'd like, I have a few questions for him. I want to challenge him on a couple of things, but I'd also just want to listen to what he has to say more than anything. Yeah. It's a mix of admiration and, you know, questioning why he would have taken some of the decisions is why this question is so great, I'll admit as well. Um, all right. Now let's start to get to know another great person, Naveed. <laughs> Tell us about your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh, and uh, at the time, this was in the uh, early, very early 70s, and uh, Bangladesh had only been a country for about 18 months, and uh, my parents, well-off educated, uh, they were professionals, they're both, that, well, at the time they were, my mom was still studying, my dad was an accountant, and my dad got, the country was brand new, there were guns everywhere from the uh, Civil, uh, the civil war, which had been part of Pakistan before. And so there was, an, well, you know, what we call an independence war, what the Pakistanis call a civil war, you know, like every man in every conflict, right? There's one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Uh, but anyway, my dad was driving home from work one day and got held up at gunpoint. There were a lot of guns floating around and it was pretty lawless. And he was like, oh, forget about this. I'm out of here. And he got home and that day he had immigration uh, from Canada the acceptance. So he had applied to Australia, Canada, and the US just as a thought, but wasn't really planning to go. And he got that. So then next thing I know, they picked me as four months old. So I've never really lived in Bangladesh. And we carted off to, to Canada, uh, to Montreal, which is uh, uh, one of the biggest, the second, I think, second largest city in Canada, quite you know, in the same, maybe has the same position in Canada that Melbourne has. In, in Australia, and that it's a little, you know it's got a bit of a chip on its shoulder versus Toronto, uh, and uh, but it thinks of itself as the cultural capital and more cosmopolitan. And then, of course, there's the French component. And I grew up basically around Canada. Um, was very lucky. My parents, I uh, didn't like. We weren't fantastically well off, but they never. Uh, we we were never uh, missed for anything. And 
Uh, my parents were very supportive, despite the fact that I was not necessarily, I didn't take advantage of uh, all the opportunities they gave me probably as much. Uh, I was never one to uh, study or try or, and you know, like uh, primary school for me was always being afraid to go to the meet the teacher night and then hearing the teachers telling uh, my parents on oh, the beat is very disruptive influence in class. He distracts others with his talking. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the principal's office, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, childhood was, as I said, it, now looking back, it was idyllic, but there was there was a lot of conflict and, and a lot of fun too. But uh, Canada, was, this was the 70s and 80s in Canada and great place to grow up, the sort of suburban, wonderful white picket fence, that type of life. So yeah. it was good. Yeah. And um, part of this you know, experience you were describing about, you know, being in the principal's office, et cetera, do you think some of those uh, days from back then influence you to this day? Is there anything you can think of? Well, I would say that probably very early on, I established that I was not a big fan of authority and being told what to do. <laughs> and which is one of the best things about being a surgeon. Ultimately, no one is your boss except you. You accept responsibility and you take the outcome. No one can tell me whom to operate on, whom not to operate on. Um, no one can tell, can guide my, ultimately I make the decisions. So that's, that's a, I think that's an important component of being a surgeon. Like, of course, there's a team and there's all of that stuff, which is incredibly important. But at the end of the day, you're the captain of the ship. You're going to wear the consequences you're going to get the rewards um, and you're going to also have to deal with the downside risks. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. Oh, I always wonder why, because um, I've never really been interested in administration within the hospital setting, because to me, the idea of being a head of a group of surgeons is crazy because how can, it's like, it would be like herding cats. I mean, every one of them is a, uh, egotistical, <laughs> narcissistic, uh, you know, person who knows best uh, in their mind. So how, how do you how do you run that? It's a, it's challenging, I think. So hats off to uh, people people like uh, Peter Chung, who are who are such great uh, surgical leaders within the surgical community. But uh, it's a it, that would be very challenging. Yeah. Okay. And um, back then, growing up, was there an indication that you'd get into medicine? No, not at all. I mean, I, like I said, I really didn't enjoy, I didn't study at all. I just, I was, I was lucky. I was good at math and, and, and science. And, uh, the reason I, when I was trying to decide what I wanted to do in university, my, I said, I, I told my parents that I wanted to do engineering hmm. and my dad said, okay, well, if you're going to do engineering, you need to go to this university. It's called the university of Waterloo, which is like the best engineering yeah. school in Canada. And I didn't want to go there because it wasn't a fun town. I wanted to go, at this point, we lived in Toronto. I wanted to go back to Montreal. So I said, oh, no, I'm going to do physics and I'll do pre-med. And then that was, of course, made my mom happy because like every subcontinental mother, she wanted her son to be a doctor. Yeah. So that was, so it was really in that sense that I, and then I did my undergraduate degree in physics. And again, probably just because math and science came easily to me and I didn't, I felt like I wouldn't have to try too hard and <laughs> could enjoy going to university. And I left home to go to university. So again, it's kind of like a the distance between where we lived at that point, Toronto and Montreal, it's be similar to Melbourne, Sydney. And yeah, I was 17 when I left home. And uh, basically I, 
it, again, probably I just I, I had that kind of fierce independence. I wanted to get out from under my parents' wings. Not that they were ever oppressive. They were lovely, but yeah, that was, that, that, so in that sense, that's probably the path that I went through to medicine was that just to please my mom, but she had, she had the right idea clearly. Yeah. So with this background of physics, which you clearly enjoyed at that time, uh, were there a couple of key moments? Do you feel that, so you mentioned you, the influence of your mom, but being by yourself, were there some key moments that brought you to medicine? I wish I could say, you know, I had one of these origin stories, like, you know, so many people are like, oh, there was this accident. And no, nothing like that at all. I, it was really a fluke. I didn't actually think I was going to get into medical school. Getting into medical school in Canada at, at that time, much like now or much like Australia, is very challenging. And I kind of, I got in somehow. <laughs> I think the interview got me in. My, my grades were, were good, but not great. And then similarly, they have that um, standardized test. Uh, it's called the MCAT. Yeah. similar to what you guys have here. I aced that, um, so that probably helped me. So I was surprised when I got into medical school and uh, my my mom was happy. I think one of the nicest things my dad ever said to me when I got into medical school was, he said, well, I'm glad that you got into medical school, but I actually wasn't worried about you. I'm sure you would have been fine no matter what. So I thought that was, my dad doesn't say a lot. So that was a, that was a pretty good compliment from him. His praise. Um, and I think we definitely need to talk about, you know, that, that notion as well, that for some people not having that single moment that oh, consolidated the path to medicine is absolutely fine. I mean, you didn't want it, you find it along the way. What do you think, Naveed? I think so. I, I remember when I went, got to medical school. So my, I went to medical school at this uh, university called Queens, which is mm -hmm. a small college town. It's a small university in a college town halfway between Montreal and Toronto. So an, an analog would be Albury between um, Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah. And it was one of the best medical schools in the country, it was you know, the second oldest one in the country. So a very good school, but small class size, only 75 of us. Wow. And I remember on day one, everyone was always like, everyone was like trying to get to know each other. And so I was, yeah, so 17, I was 21 because I did my four years of undergrad and the median age, because all, um, all medical school entry was postgraduate at that point yeah. in Canada from then on. The median age in our class was 25 because a lot of people did masters and PhDs or whatever before they were trying to get in. Mm. So there was about, about 15 or 20 of us that were 21. So we were the kind of the, the babies in the class. And then there were some others that were in their early 30s. But I remember everyone kind of saying, oh, what are you going to do? Like, what do you want to do next? And I was like, uh, be a doctor? Like, <laughs> I didn't even know what, what, else, what else you could choose. And to be honest, I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't have told you how many spleens you had at that point. I didn't know anything about medicine. I did my, you know, I had to do my pre, like my organic chemistry and my freshman bio as prerequisites, but I really didn't know much about anything. And so yeah. it was real, it was like a, a crucible, a cauldron fire, just getting, trying to get caught up on all of that. Um, and undeniably, at some point, you know, you kept going with it and came out a doctor as you wanted. Um, are there some highlights you remember from those days? So the, um, I remember the first day I went into an operating room and it was, we were, had been, we were in the, we had been in class for maybe four weeks. It was my first time in an operating room. You know, you're going in there, you're yeah. a first year medical student. Dazzle. And I was going to see some ophthalmology or ophthalmic surgery. 
And I remember going in and they were like started, you know, sticking a needle into the eye. And I remember kind of feeling a little faint. And then the anesthetist says, son, you better sit down. And I just realized I was getting tunnel vision. And then I had been in there for about like 30 seconds. And I just <laughs> stepped outside, sat down in the corridor, put my head between my knees for about two minutes. And then blood came back. And I went, because I had gone completely vasovagal. And then I walked back in and I was fine. And it was just my body was saying, uh, this is not right. Like you shouldn't be sticking things into people's eyeballs. And I was like, oh, wow. And then the, the only other time that has happened to me was my uh, final year of med school when I was on the OBS rotation and I saw my first delivery. Yeah. <laughs> and I almost passed out again. First time, just the, the smells and the screaming and oh, yeah, that was, I knew I was not gonna be an obstetrician. <laughs> very early on, I realized that surgery was different from the rest of the medicine and that it was very much something that I was suited for. And, yeah. you know, the sense of having discrete problems with discrete solutions, it is, is really the way, the main thing that differentiates surger, surgery from the rest of medicine, right? I mean, you never cure or finish your involvement with someone with diabetes or asthma, you know, or rheumatoid arthritis or glomerular nephropathy, but you pick it, pick a disease, right? That the physicians are dealing with. And I'm so glad that they are good at doing that because I'm glad I don't have to do it. Yeah. But this idea of discrete problems, discrete solutions, a reward structure that's relatively immediate, that became very clear to me that that's something that I would value. I probably suffer from short attention span. And, and I think that in that sense, surgery was a, a calling for me. And, and that's what it almost became our group of friends. Like you almost started hanging out with the other people who wanted to be surgeons and, yeah. you know, probably a lot of the way, the way that you guys do, you, you have your surgical undergraduate surgical societies. And so you start, so a lot of my friend group were in that surgical space. It was a big group of us, probably about 15 of us that all wanted to do various different kinds of surgery and still in touch with them, as I said, but not, not very closely being that they're all on the other side of the planet. I am still very in touch with my, with the group of people that I trained with during my residency. We called it residency, but here it's like, you know, resident registrar years. It's kind of like you went through the trenches together. That was, you know, you're battle hardened. So uh, that group I'm still close with and I see, see a lot of them regularly. Yeah. Now, um, we do know that you're quite a fan of philosophy and surgery and how the two interact. So our next question now, Navid, is take us through your mindset as a medical student. What were your dreams, goals, and philosophies at that time? So, as I said, my humans are my, people are my favorite animals. And the one thing I didn't like about surgery was this idea of having a very brief interaction with someone. So, you, you know, you yeah. fix their, they have a broken leg, you fix it, or you take out their appendix, and then you don't really have that sort of longitudinal, uh, nuanced, interesting, complicated relationship with them. And, and that's what I found that in cancer, in oncology, because in oncology and in oncologic surgery and cancer surgery, you do have these very deep, nuanced relationships with patients you have these discussions where you're you know you're often the first person that's giving them a, a diagnosis which is terrible 
thing to do, but um, it can be done well or it can be done poorly. And that makes a big difference as to how people are set up for the next phase of their treatment. So that's, so that I was drawn to that. And I remember first uh, in my first years thinking, yeah, okay, I wanna be a surgical oncologist. And so my first research project that I had to do was I chose breast cancer just because it was what I'd been exposed to. And, and breast cancer is fascinating in terms of the oncologic side, but um, the surgery is can be a little bit repetitive. It's not uh, it's not the most technically challenging, uh, but whereas the, the medical side of it is fascinating. So that's how I, I think I ended up gravitating towards uh, the thoracic side and other things that I would have loved to, would have been involved with would have been say paddlebillary or uh, I toyed with the idea of doing ENT uh, for and head and neck for the onco oncological side. So that's kind of what informed my dreams um, as a medical student, this idea of being able to be a surgeon, having problems that you fix, cure disease, but still have nice, deep, meaningful relationships that are longitudinal with your patients. Yeah, because one does hear that, oh, you know, a surgeon barely spends time with a patient, the ward rounds are so short, etc. Um, and I think that's a point that's quite important to me too as well, is to show that you can have meaningful interactions in the brief time you've been given. Um, and I think having you, you know, at the head of where you are at the moment, teaching us that same lesson is invaluable. The, yeah, like, you know, the idea of work rounds and, and even like clinic visits, the reason that they're short is because the problems are discrete, but that doesn't mean that it's not informed with all kinds of other stuff, right? Like just because you're not taking an in-depth review of systems uh, to come up with a diagnosis doesn't mean that you're, you, you're not spending quality time with the patient and their families developing rapport. You know, so much of what I think is what I like to teach and impart upon my trainees and my medical students and is this idea of when you're dealing with life and death problems, which is what we're dealing with every day, and you're coming into a patient interaction you have to put your best foot forward. What you have, your main goal, because most of the time in surgery, I've seen the CT scan and I already know what I'm going to do for that patient. We're not, this isn't, we're not medical students. We're not taking a history to filling out a bit of the picture, but I have a good idea of what I'm going to do. The main exercise, the main goal of the exercise when I interact with the patient is to build rapport and trust. Yeah. And that starts with first impression. So one of the other areas when we talk about how I read a lot around, not around medicine, one of the other things that I read a lot around is psychology and um, things like decision-making and body language, how to read body language, how to have positive body language. And one of the things that I try and teach my, the people that work with me is how to go in and develop that rapport with a patient as quickly as you can. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. I used to, I think, I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at that anyway, but you can always get better. And one of the things that I've changed is I used to say I'm in my office and there's a patient in the waiting room. I would go to the waiting room and get the patient, but I would have the chart in my hands and I was going to read the name off the chart and then they would get up and then they would come in and then they would sit down and I'd say hello. And then I might do something on the computer to bring up their imaging. Mm. And that's a lot of downtime where before you're interacting. And one of the things that you can do, so one of the big um, body language uh, friendship signals is open hands. Yeah. So one change that I made was I just leave the chart there, remember the name, 
walk in, and as I walk around the corner into the office, into the waiting room, I call out the patient's name. It's a new patient. I don't know who they are. Call out their name. They look up. You walk to them now with your hands open. You shake their hand. You help them up out of their chair. And all of a sudden, the, the rapport is being established there. You haven't said a word yet, but there, there's warmth. There's trust that's being built. They've got about 20 to 30 seconds to decide if they're going to put their life in your hands. So you want to make the most of that. The other thing to do is have everything set up in the room beforehand. The imaging is up. My pen is there. My, you know, everything is there so that once they come and sit down, and this is the beauty of surgery, because you already know what you're going to do, you can take that time to say to them and, and ask an open-ended question. Tell me why you're here. Yeah. And then, 95% of the time you let them finish every now and again, you get someone who's going to be very rambling. You might have to curtail them after a little bit, yeah. but they're going to tell you why they're there. They're going to feel like they've opened up to you. And now 90% of the rapport is built. They're talking to you. You're listening. You're warm, you're trustworthy. And that's a big part of it. So I think that's why, where you can really make, make gains in terms of surgery and even though things the interactions are quick they're very meaningful yeah and like you were saying earlier perhaps this is where the inability to multitask effectively um, comes into play if you're giving them your whole focus that's what increases the rapport as well yeah i encourage people to there's exactly like studies that show that if you have a cell phone or mobile on your desk, even if it's face down and it's between you and a, uh, someone else, that detracts. Even if, so, take your phone, put it away, put it somewhere further away. Now, if you're on call, that's fine. You have to deal with it, but you still doesn't have to be between you and the patient. It can be somewhere else. And then, if it rings or something happens, you can say, "Excuse me, I just need to uh, attend to this." So, the little, all these little things that that I picked up from reading, that I try and apply to my practice and impart upon the people that are around me, to just make the patient experience better. And that makes you a better doctor and a better surgeon. Yeah. And I feel um, even as medical students, we can start doing that because who you will become um, is being constructed at the moment, at least in a small part. Um, now, back to the medical student days that we were talking about, did you have any challenges in medical school? Um, and what could we perhaps learn from them? I think that there weren't any specific, again, the bad things that happened or challenges. It was just a function of trying to figure out what you wanted to do, take the steps, play the political games a little bit that you had to, to get there. Mostly it was the idea of transitioning. So our first two years were in class and yeah. then our second two years were in the hospital. And as I said, I'm not a fan of studying. And so those first two years, I really, was in medical school and not enjoying it that much, but, you know, was never entertaining leaving or anything like that, but sort of strictly finishing in the middle of my class because I wasn't necessarily working that hard. But then once we got to the hospital, it all changed. It was like, oh, here we are. We're with people now and it matters and you can see why things are important. And, and then, it, then the whole game was different. So probably that would have been a bit of a challenge was just sort of keeping myself going and trying to catch up a little bit on the background knowledge, but nothing too dramatic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in thinking about yourself as a medical student and now having this wild kaleidoscope of now looking at medical students, 
Do you think there are some things that we should be doing less of or more of these days as medical students? I think that the opportunity, so when you're in a, I, I try and impart, I try and do this when I'm lecturing is you can read all the stuff and now it's on your phone anyway, the basics and where you want to learn things and remember things is around stories and around patients and around vignettes that you've seen. So when I give a lecture, I try not to go into too much detail about the pathways of the physiology, but try to think more in big picture terms and tie the thinking to specific case scenario or patient scenarios. And I think that that's a good way to learn in medical school. You still need and I'm not saying we shouldn't be teaching all those things, but mm -hmm. a lot of those things you can learn on your own. And that's, and that's sort of in the focus. And a lot of people have lamented, you know, the removal of say anatomy from medical school. And, and certainly that's, there are some downsides to that, but a lot of that can be learned on your own. Uh, you just have to be sort of motivated to do it. In terms of what we should be doing more in medical school, I think in medical school, you should start thinking about this formulation. Again, we don't, you don't have to do it in Australia to the same extent about mapping out your future career. Yeah. You should start querying everyone you interact with about why they do what they do. And then trying to find people that are perhaps like-minded or that you can empathize with. You can see yourself going along that pathway because medicine is wide open and there's so many opportunities and you don't want to burn bridges. But at the same time, because it's so wide open, if you don't put some focus and initially you're going to get lost. You, you know, you, you'll miss, you won't see the forest for the trees. You'll, you'll miss things. Yeah. So a bit of um, querying which direction you want to go to. So for example, big picture questions to strike, to try and ask yourself early in medicine is, do I want to be in primary care or do I want to be in specialty care? You know, am I, am I more interested in the breadth of knowledge or in a depth of knowledge? That's one question. And then do you want to be more physician? Do you want to be more of a surgeon in terms of the discrete, the discrete problems or more the detective work and yeah. those longitudinal relationships? So I think those are the kind of things that we probably don't spend enough time in medical school getting people to do. Yeah, which is not you know part of the curriculum where we sit down and think about what we want to do. It's really through things like this, this conversation, finding out about things or uh, going to careers, expos, et cetera, where we learn to find that. So I think that's good advice to start inquiring into um, at least the general direction of where we need to go. Ask anyone that you interact with. You, know, you, you talk to a registrar who's dead set on being a nephrologist, ask them why. why what do they love about the kidney? Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of a funny story. We, when, I, when I was an intern, we were um, doing a ward round with the general surgeon, yeah. the general surgeon, and I was worried about, I don't know, the chloride or something being low, and I, I kind of piped it up in the ward round. The surgeon turns to me and says, Naveed, don't worry. The dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they'll sort it out. He's like, don't worry about the chloride. It's going to get itself sorted out. Yeah, um, which we shouldn't take too much now that the body will just, you know, sort itself out. But it's a good principle to start with. Um, now, you mentioned there your intern year. Was that still in Canada? Yes. Yeah, so I did um, 
So once we finished medical school, uh, I was in a surgery pathway, uh, a thoracic surgery pathway. My intern year was still very varied. So we did, you know, internal medicine, uh, some pediatrics, uh, OBGYN. Yeah. So you still did everything, but you were part of the, the you knew where you were going to be every year for until you were be qualified. So that that's the one advantage, or that is an advantage of the way training is structured in North America is you kind of have a roadmap. There's much, there's much more certainty as to where you're going to go. Yeah. Um, and after internship, so can you break down your journey for us in your own words? Where were you? So I was basically spent all of the, my postgraduate training uh, in uh, this small town called, a well, small town, about a million people, about the size of Adelaide, called um, Winnipeg, which is in the middle of Canada. Oh, yeah. And it was a, a great one big hospital for a huge area. So the next closest hospital to us was 3000 kilometers. So we were, we would do everything. And that was exciting. And I was there for five years, right from graduating from medical school to being qualified um, as a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of Canada with one year break of um, sort of independent study where I did a fellowship at the National Cancer Institute of Canada in clinical trials, but we talked about that. But it was a really great environment in the sense that you had people that were really invested in your outcome. So the surgeons who ran that unit, you were, you reflected on them. If you didn't pass your exams, they look bad. Okay. And they, so they were, and they had you over, you know, they first met me when I was a medical student because I went there for an elective. That's how I got into that training program. So they, okay. they had me for seven, eight years. They knew you know, they really guided your development in a lot of ways or were responsible for it in a lot of ways. So that part was really uh, interesting. And, and I miss that. I miss that model here. I find sometimes with our trainees and we, we, I try to do it anyway with our trainees. Like I always say to them, look, you've left, you've left us at St. Vincent's, but you're always a St. Vincent's trainee and your success is our success. And call me anytime, three in the morning, doesn't matter. You have a question about thoracic surgery. And when I get consultants, you know, People that have been consultants for 10 years now calling me every now and again about questions, which is great. Wow. And by the same token, I, every now and again, I'm trying to think the last time, maybe three, four years ago, I reached out to one of my mentors that I trained with in New York uh, about a specific, I'd never seen something before and I asked them a question. So yeah. that part is that sort of longitudinal relationship is good. Yeah, so we do gather that, you know, you were well supported in those years. So what would have been residency here and um, registrar years over here? Yeah, that's right. Um, and was that a typical pathway for people to take? Um, yeah, everyone everyone in Canada would have been in, on some sort of a structured pathway like that in any, any discipline, um, so any surgical discipline. So you kind of went directly into a subspecialty. Whereas, like, if you're in urology, you're in urology out of med school. You're in plastics out of med school. You're in neurosurgery out of med school. Physicians was a little bit different, and I'm not sure what's happened in the you know past 20 years since that was I was there. But physicians, you would do sort of the same idea of basic physician training for three years, and then you would subspecialize. But for surgery, you were kind of you had to make that decision pretty early on. Yeah, there was some room and flexibility to move around, but not a lot. Yeah. Now, one of the things that fascinates me um, about moving from medical school to outside is you 
start to be comfortable with your independence and with the fact that you are somehow the person making the decisions. So when we come to decisions, were there some things that were important to you? Were there some things that were driving your decision-making in the early stages of your career? Well, the main thing was getting through training, trying to be the best that you could be. You know, this idea of you only get to train once where you have, you have a safety net and you have people around you that are completely invested in your success and want you to thrive and succeed. And everyone is on your team that, and then that support, that kind of cocoon that's there is a fantastic opportunity. And, and I really wanted to make sure I got the most out of it. And so every rotation that you would go on, I wanted to, I wanted to shine. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted them to think that I was the best person that had come through that service or whatever, and, mm. and just enjoy myself and get the most out of it. And we rotated through all these different surgical services. My, you know, our program was quite varied and there was a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of cardiothoracic, but there was a lot of general surgery. There was head and neck. There was all these other stuff. We did some anesthesia. So it was really a, a valuable opportunity. And you just wanted to learn as much as you could the whole way, because the guiding thought for me was one day you're going to be doing this on your own. Yeah. And so make sure you, you pick up what you can along the way. Yeah. Now the next thing I wanted to get your thoughts on David was the fact that you were training in Canada back then. And at some point you made the decision to come down under to Melbourne these days. Um, how, how did you come about making that decision? <laughs> well, that was a, that was a journey for love. I, uh, I met a girl and, uh, as, uh, as all great, uh, uh, migrations begin, that was the story. Um, it was, it was very much a surprise to me that I was going to end up living in Australia. I, 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 I met this, uh, I met her in actually met I sat beside her on a plane it was very serendipitous it was kind of a love at first sight thing and next thing I know six I was sort of most of the way through my training I think I was in four out of six years and like fourth out of my sixth year in training and and she was from Melbourne and uh we met we uh exchanged email addresses and just started communicating and then next thing I know six months later I came to Melbourne to visit her I'd never entertained the idea of coming to Australia before and then next thing I knew, I was planning to move here and looking for a job here as I was finishing my training and my fellowship. And uh, my parents were scratching their heads. They're like, you know, you've got all these, because uh, I had some pretty good job offers in North America. And I was kind of throwing them all to the wind to come to St. Vincent's and, uh, for a very small uh, fractional appointment uh, and didn't really know what was going to happen here. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, that's another facet of my personality. I probably uh, have something, a target and kind of go for it and don't necessarily deviate too much from the plan, I guess. Yeah, well, so that's what gave, gives us the privilege today to be talking to you over here in Melbourne. Did you think that the transition from North American practice to Australian practice was you know, a, a big consideration, a big challenge? No, having never been a, never been a consultant anywhere, Oh, St. Vincent's was my first consultant job. So I knew that the transition from, say, you know, say registrar to fellow and then from fellow to consultant was the big transition. And it didn't necessarily matter wherever you went, it was going to be similar. Um, Canada, uh, the Canadian system and the Australian system have a lot in, a lot in common, a lot, of, a lot of parallels. And so, it, and, and I was, I was treated 
like go over here by St. Vincent's. They um, they took such good care of me. I remember meeting uh, Wilma Beswick, uh, Peter Chung, all these. He was the Peter was the chief medical officer then, um, and Wilma was the professor, and everyone was so uh, welcoming. And of course, um, I got recruited eventually by uh, by Gavin Wright, who's my practice partner now, the other thoracic surgeon at St. Vincent's. And, was again, it was really lucky that I even got through to him. I was presenting a paper at a conference in Chicago um, and the other person in my session was a radiation oncologist from Peter Mac. And I saw Peter Mac Melbourne, Australia, which is where this girl was living. And I was kind of like, oh, maybe. I asked them, I said, oh, ask this uh, doctor, it's uh, Michael McManus, radiation oncologist, Peter Mac. I said, oh, do you know any thoracic surgeons in Melbourne. He said, oh yes, you should contact Gavin Wright. And then I emailed Gavin like the next day and Gavin emailed me back brilliantly, like a two page email. But I just like, oh, do you need any thoracic surgery help? Yeah. Email me back this fantastic letter. Um, and I was again, about two, two years out from finishing. And so we sort of crafted this pathway to get me to Melbourne. And as I said, St. Vincent's was just spectacular in their support for me from day one uh, and uh, I never looked back and unfortunately things didn't work out with um, with that love interest but uh, I stayed primarily because of St. Vincent's. I had opportunities when I, I got a I got an offer to go uh, be an attending which is the level of standards of consult at uh, Mount Sinai in New York City in Manhattan. My one of my the surgeons that I meant that would mentor me and when I did my fellowship in New York, he he had taken over Mount Sinai and become head of unit and he called me up. And I'd been a I'd been a consultant at St. B's at that point for about six, six, seven years. Yeah. And he said, Vanita, I'm starting my own unit. I'd love for you to come and join me. And I was like, oh wow, that's tempting. Manhattan, you know, big lights, big, bright city, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but um, as I said, St. B's has just been so good to me always that uh, I decided to stay and I'm very happy for it. Yeah, I think this is another great story reminding us of perhaps serendipity and how it can play a role, you know, meeting that person at that talk and asking about them. Do you think there are things we can do to increase our serendipity? Well, you should be open to all opportunities. I think that if you go out in the world with your eyes open, I saw this thing the other day. It was, um, why do children love getting up in the morning, right? Because yeah. It's the, it's the opposite of adults. Like most adults get up in the morning and they're like, oh, got my routine. It's dreary, you know, like maybe this is gonna happen. I know what's gonna happen. Kids wake up in the morning and they're like, they don't know what's gonna happen. That day is new. It is fresh. It is full of excitement and adventure. And I think that that's the way to kind of do it. And I think I try and do that. I try and wake up and I kind of think, okay, what is today, what is today gonna hold for me? What is unexpected? What is new? What can come my way? that's the way serendipity is going to brush your life is you have to have your eyes open. You can't have your head down or you'll miss opportunities left, right, and center. Take those opportunities, jump yeah. when you get that chance. I love that. Taking that leap of faith. Um, once you've considered everything else that, you know, life has to offer. Um, and in taking that leap of faith, Navid, what also underlies all of this is that you left your family. Um, are they still back in Canada? So my, that was one thing that wasn't that much of a consideration. My, my parents had moved back to Bangladesh at that point and my sort of extended family are scattered all over the world. And as I said, I moved out when I was 17. So I was very functionally independent anyway. So 
whether I was, in some ways, being in Australia is actually closer to my parents. And, well, it is literally closer, Bangladesh is closer to, to Australia than Canada was. So that wasn't in and of itself a concern, but it was this idea of leaving all of my friends and my network. Mm. And the biggest, I think, question mark, and it, it, again, it didn't bother me, because I don't think I gave it enough thought, but turning down some pretty good job opportunities in top hospitals in Canada and in the US, some good opportunities that other people would have said, like my parents, I said, they're like, Why, what are you doing? <laughs> but you, know, you have to go where your heart takes you, I guess. Yeah. It's all worked out well. Because another factor that um, you've mentioned as being the key to making those things work have been the people ahead of you who believed in you, so mentors, so to speak. Um, talk to us about your mentors. Who have you looked up to across the years and what should people be looking for in their mentors? Probably the person that's had the most influence in my uh, development as a surgeon would have been the head of our unit in, in Winnipeg. And this is a, probably at the time in his early 50s, so quite a bit senior to me, and very much known in the hospital as uh, a power player and, and kind of a psychopath. Um, <laughs> you know, in kind of an old school traditional surgeon would like yell at you while you were operating, like bully, classic bully, all of that stuff. And I remember once when I was, I was an intern, was doing something and there was no nurses would want to work with him because he was so, he was so ornery and he was, you know, just really difficult to be around. And uh, I came out of the operating room and the, one of the, the, the scrub nurse who worked with him for like 15 years, she was like, wow, I've never seen him like that. And I was like, I was an intern. I was like, yeah, that was crazy. I can't believe he was, she's like, no, I've never seen him be so be so nice to an intern before. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. I didn't realize it until a little bit later, but he treated me better than he had ever treated anyone, even though I thought I was getting the, uh, you know, the short end of the stick. But he, yeah. he really, he, saw something in me early on and he devoted a lot of time and effort to my training. And, you know, you hear, I mean, I'm, I don't have children, but you hear parents sometimes say when they're here talking to their kids, they hear their parents in their own heads, the same things passing on. And I hear myself now when I'm talking to my registrars saying the things that he would say to me, but without being a psychopath and mean about it, but still kind of the same, a lot of the same, um, into like the same information, but packaged differently. So I remember him saying things like, this is, this is kind of an example of what kind of a psychopath he was. He'd be, and he would say this in a mean way. He would say, Naveed, you have no idea how difficult it is for me to watch you operate when I know I can do it so much better than you. <laughs> and the reality is when you're a consultant surgeon and you're watching your trainees operate, that is a very big part of it. It's very challenging to step back and give away that control because yeah. we're all I mean, the whole point of being in surgery is is being controlled but what was amazing about him was he was so confident in his ability to get you out of trouble that he would let you operate and if you screwed up he would fix it and he would hand the instruments back to you and we had a bunch of um we had a bunch of uh, saudi arabian trainees that came from saudi that were being trained their government paid for them to come get trained in canada and this guy my this old surgeon he was a racist for sure and he would say you know old school german heritage and he would say these like horrendous things to these saudi arabian trainees he'd be like hold that 
scalpel like it's the sword of Allah. Like he would say all these kind of things like, yeah. and yeah. they didn't care at all. And I would ask them, I'd be like, they were senior to me. I was junior. They were senior. I was like, you know, what? Did, how did you feel when he was saying that? He's like, I don't care. He lets me operate. You should hear what they say to me in Saudi Arabia. This is nothing. Look, perspective. Exactly. And, and that was what I learned from him so much was he vented, but he had to vent to let us operate. Mm. He had to say that so that he could let you operate so that you knew that he was doing you a favor. And, and we did, and we appreciated it. And he was an amazing surgeon. And I learned a lot from him. And I learned a lot about how not to treat people, obviously, yeah. um, which is which is very important. And I remember actually, he actually told me that once we, we did my intern, my intern rotation, I was on the, I was on the gynae service. And I went at the end of the year to my final year rotation with him, this old surgeon. And he's like, everyone said you were fantastic, except you had one comment on your gynecology rotation where they said, that you were very good, but surprisingly, you didn't go to the operating room very much for a surgical training. And I was like, well, his name was Dr. Unruh. I said, well, Dr. Unruh, the first day that I was there, they, you know, they made their fan steel incision and I put a pack down to stop all the bleeding. And the next swipe of the scalpel almost took my fingers off. So yeah. I just thought, okay, maybe I don't want to go to the operating room anymore. And he said, see, there's your problem. You can always learn what not to do from people. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. So I learned a lot of what, of how to be a good surgeon and how to be a good person by not following his example. <laughs> yes. And are there some, because um, we often hear the notion of find someone who's doing what you want to do in the way that you want to do it and approach them, you know, ask them for advice. Do you think that's something that holds true for you in terms of seeking out mentors? Very much so. I think that you, you kind of pick and choose a little bit among people and, and having a few different mentors where you can get different aspects of um, mentorship from them is important. When I came to Australia, brand new consultant, didn't know anyone here, which was new, right? Most, most times you start as a consultant, at least you've got your network of other people and you've got people that you train with. Uh, and so I, I relied very heavily on, on the people around me uh, and they were all lovely. So, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, Gavin Wright was, uh, he's uh, always been very helpful and supportive. Uh, and then from a professional standpoint, also uh, Professor Chen Peter. So he, yeah. although we're not in the same specialty, he's still the same idea, surgery, oncology. Uh, you know, he's a fantastic leader. Uh, he's, he's great at getting things done. Um, so you certainly find that you can get different things from different people. And I think that's very important in terms of men, uh, mentorship. And I think one of the most beneficial things about the way that we train in medicine is this idea that you're always a mentor to the people immediately below you, and you're always being mentored by the people immediately above you. And so there's this kind of rolling, uh, almost apprenticeship in how to be a mentor, right? Like we all know how to be mentors. Like you're already mentoring first year medical students to a certain extent. So that continues. And that's a very, uh, we're very privileged to have that in medicine. Yeah. And the, the ability as well to change those hats whenever required. So you put your mentee hat when you're talking to someone you look up to and then swap it out straight away. That's yeah. right. Um, now to move on to an issue that we thought we would get your perspective on, Navid, is about the changing nature of cardiothoracics as a whole. So we understand that you are more focused 
focus on the thoracic side of things. But um, in, in spending some time on the wards and on certain units, we have also heard that the field as a whole is dwindling um, due to the emergence of interventional procedures, um, which you know the procedures are shuffling along to there. As a consultant working in the field, do you have any comments about that? Yes, that is definitely a big trend that's happened in the, in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. It's been going on for 40 years. So the real heyday of cardiothoracic surgery or cardiac surgery was sort of the 80s and 90s when coronary artery bypass grafting was ubiquitous and um, when they just started angiograms, but they weren't doing a lot of any, a lot of interventions. And cardiac surgeons at that point were so excited and so focused on doing surgery that they kind of forgot to be managing the patients and they gave control. This is what we've, we've always said is the issue that the, the gatekeepers of cardiac patients are cardiologists, not cardiac surgeons. GPs don't refer to a cardiac surgeon, they refer to a cardiologist and then the cardiologists are making the decision. So that is certainly a consideration and a concern. Um, there will always be a role for cardiac surgery, but without a doubt, the caseload has been dropping for more than a decade now. The complexity of the cases has been increasing. And what does that mean? Well, it means that there will be less work for people. You can't employ the same number of surgeons with fewer operations. And it's also a very, um, it's, a, it's a cautionary tale for other specialties. And so when we look on the thoracic side, we're still cancer focused and a, a parallel would be, so let's talk about stereotactic radiation or, you know, now we're, Things called SABER, where they're using radiation for early lung cancer. So a parallel is if you if you're not in control of the patient the entire journey, you're going to lose out on that. You're going to you have to be on the diagnostic spectrum uh, as well, so that you don't lose control. So we um, some cardiothoracic surgeons, not most, but those who have a very uh, big interest in thoracic, make sure that we make sure that we do all the diagnostic stuff as well. So we do the bronchoscopies and then the bronchial ultrasounds and getting the diagnosis. The same, the respiratory physicians do it, but we do it as well. So you keep your hand um, in that space. So you don't lose control of the narrative and of the patients. And because part of the problem that's, that's happened in cardiac surgery is that there are often times where there's good evidence to show that an operation grafts is better than a stent in certain scenarios. But the cardiologist is offering it to the patient and they might be like, well, hey, do you want just the little stent that we're already in there anyway? Or do you want your chest ripped open? And, you know, yeah. what's the patient going to choose, right? So there is, there is a component of that. So you need to be in the conversation. And I think that as we move forward, that may be a problem. However, there are other opportunities and avenues that will open up. So if we think about things like stem cells and xenotransplantation and yeah. tissue engineering. Well, when you start getting to maybe transplanting organs that have been grown in the lab based on our own stem cells, then you're gonna need a lot of surgeons because guess what? That's not gonna be done by a cardiologist with a catheter, right? So there is, and I, and I think that there will always be a role for cardiac surgery. Um, but in the meantime, you do need to keep an eye on that. and we as a specialty have to keep an eye on, are we getting enough training for our, for our junior doctors? Are they learning enough? And how do we future-proof them? And I think that's one of the ways you need to be 
also involved in the cutting edge and the next technologies, be it robotics, be it. Uh, so one of the things that I've been trying to get involved with or I'm getting involved with now in the thoracic space is um, there's something called navigational bronchoscopy, which basically you put the bronchoscope only goes in partway to the, you know, past the, not far down the main bronchi, but then you can thread a catheter with, which is imprinted on a GPS for the CT scan and it has a magnet. You can end up anywhere in the lung. Yeah. So that's almost analogous to an angiogram. And they're doing that now for biopsies, but what's going to happen next is they're going to start doing therapy with that, right? So they'll use a radiation probe, uh, uh, radio frequency ablation probe or a cryo probe to then treat a tumor with that. So when I was thinking about that, I was like, well, I need to make sure that I'm doing navigational bronchoscopy so that I can offer that treatment so that yeah. we're not out of the treatment spectrum. And I think spectrum, and I think that's a big part of what you need to be looking at if you're looking at a future in cardiothoracic surgeries, but you have to be realistic about it, but there will still be opportunities. You yeah. just have to be the best. Otherwise you're not going to get a job. Yeah. Well, that's a simple order. Just be the best. Um, but jokes aside, I, I do feel there are already the challenges of, you know, we hear about the on-call hours in cardiothoracics as being quite, uh, quite tough. And now to hear that the procedures are changing, the nature of them um, does, you know, dishearten some people about going forward. So keeping on top of things apparently is what you would um, advise it. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, dishearten, no pun intended, is, is the right, is the right thing because I don't think you can go into this specialty unless you are very resilient and very dedicated because it is very consuming. There aren't really very many part-time cardiothoracic surgeons. You know, it's a, it's a life and death specialty every time we operate, even in thoracic where, you know, we do simple, we do some simple procedures, but mortality is always just a little mistake away because it's ABC. Like, you know, you're in, even if you're doing bronchoscopy, you're in the airway, you biopsy something, it starts bleeding. It's, you know, people can die. So every time you do, so you need to be focused. And that's what I, I, I think that it's, especially is not for everyone, for sure. It's, uh, it has to, you have to really love it, I think. And, and, and a little bit about those hours, yeah. without a doubt, um, it's demanding and it's tiring, but the prize, you gotta keep your eyes on the prize. And hopefully, and I, I find this, you know, when I was training that if you look at every opportunity as de personal development, you know, I did, um, so like I said, we were, I was in this big hospital, biggest hospital for 3000 kilometers for three months in my fourth year. So my sort of, I was, I was the senior trauma registrar, call it for three months. And I just told everyone, I'll see you in three months. Like I am going to live in the hospital because this is my opportunity to learn everything about trauma and get tremendous experience. And so there, it is tough. It is tough. It's not, it's not the specialty for everyone. And like you say, you know, there are, there are challenges in terms of getting a job and there are a lot of, unfortunately, there are a lot of um, young underemployed cardiothoracic surgeons, you know, fracks that fully qualified in Australia. And that's a very important thing for people to know. 
I'm not discouraging anyone from doing it. I think it's the best specialty, but it's very important people have those facts. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to fleece someone and, and say, oh, it's all, you know, rainbows and lollipops. Yeah. It's hard. And, but if you're good, if you love it, you'll do well and you'll have an amazing career. Yeah. That's great advice. Thanks for giving us that you know, honest um, and refreshing outlook on the specialty. Now, Naveed, in terms of a last question before we move on to some reflection, um, tell us a, a bit about your current work. What other professional commitments keep you busy other than what we've spoken about? And what can we see you doing over the next few years? I think um, apart from my clinical uh, commitments, uh, which are primarily based at St. Vincent's uh, Public and Private, the things that I enjoy the most are um, is, is teaching. So, and at all levels. So I really enjoy interacting with uh, medical students. That's been the real uh, downside of this coronavirus situation is not being able to spend as much time with students as uh, we normally would like to. Yeah. And then we do a, a, with interns. So non-vocational training, so junior doctors. One of the things I love doing, and we do it all the time is you know, do it a month ago, I had a medical student in with us and they were scrubbed and uh, I just, they, were, they weren't expecting it all. And I just turned to them and I said, okay, I want you to take the scalpel and I want you to make an incision from here to here. And they just looked at me and I'm like, have you ever used a scalpel before? They're like, not on a patient. I'm like, well, today's your lucky day. And you could see the excitement, but also the anxiety yeah. in their face, which is amazing. I love doing that. I, I still get to do that all the time. I'm so many people have told me I'm the first person to give them a scalpel, right? Go make your incision. Yeah. And, and I'm like, hold it like a pencil. And then I'm like, is that how you hold a pencil? No, that's how you hold a dagger. Hold it like a pencil. Talk them through it, get them. And then see them the next day and they've still got the smile on their face. Yeah. You know, because you've, you've given them something that they are going to always remember. I remember the first surgeon that let me cut somebody. And I remember it like it was yesterday and I was, freaked out <laughs> it was this it was it was a young girl she was like eight 17 or 18 and she had a little mole on her back and I was in plastic surgery clinic with this plastic surgeon and she was facing away from us and so he he prepped her back and everything and then he just hands me the scalp and I'm like <laughs> and I was like a third year medical student or something I was like oh my god what are we gonna do here uh so that's the kind of thing that really gets me excited is like giving people those opportunities and 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 it's the same with my registrars. Like uh, I get one of my registrars the other day, um, unaccredited, uh, but I was giving him some opportunity to dissect around pulmonary artery, and afterwards he just had this smile on his face. I'm like, "That's your first time dissecting on the big vessels." He's like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> you know where every you know because you make a mistake there, it's a big problem." Um, so I love that aspect of teaching that, um, and I think that teaching a physical skill, there's a, there's some, there's some really interesting components to it. So one of the things I like to do, um, let's say you're an intern on my service and you're pretty comfortable sewing up a wound. I like to, after you've done it a couple of times, I like to stand there and watch you do it like a hawk. Yeah because I want to simulate some pressure. So I can't simulate the pressure of the patient that's going to die if you, if you mess up in the next, you know, five seconds you screw up. But you can simulate that little bit of pressure. And that's important because sometimes people are like, oh, 
I can do it when you're not looking. And I'm like, well, yeah, that doesn't help you. You have to be able to do it when people are looking. So I, I try and think of ways that I can simulate that bit of pressure because you're trying to get people to make those decisions. Like, how do you know that you can be a surgeon? You have to be able to perform under pressure. You have to enjoy the pressure. You have to rise to the occasion. Now, that doesn't mean that the first time you cut, you're going to be good at it or that you're going to be confident. I think one of the most critical skills, not skills, maybe there's a real balance in surgery between, and it's a fine line between humility and confidence. Mm -hmm. And that comes with, the confidence obviously comes from experience. You have to have you know, been trained to do things. But the humility also comes from the experience of no matter what you do, sometimes things go wrong, sometimes things go badly. And so you have this kind of fine balance. You have to come to the situations confident in your ability, but humble, knowing that you're not in complete control, even if you think you are. And you have to be willing to make allowances for that. And I think that's a big part of it yeah. in terms of teaching. And, and hopefully that's one of the things I like to try to impart upon people around me. Yeah, lovely to hear that, Naveed. Um, now, in terms of a reflection question for you at the end of today, we've learned so much about your journey, such as getting on a flight coming all the way to Melbourne. Um, but are there some lessons you'd like to leave us with um, to all the members of the audience who are listening to us? I think that in medicine, the most important thing you can do as a, as a doctor when you're with a patient is remember that to give them all of your attention. So try and minimize your distractions when you're with someone. Put your phone away, do what you can, and give them your whole attention. Because I promise you, that's, especially if you're in surgery, you're a surgeon, that is not only the most important interaction that that patient is gonna have that day, that might be one of the most important interactions they have with another person in their whole life. And so you have to give them that respect. And I think that's, that's a real key. Really imagine that, like, think of how, how important that is, that interaction, and give it that sense of uh, um, gravitas, like make sure that it's that gravity that goes in that situation. Yeah. I think that's important. And then the other takeaway, I think that I, that I try and also give in my lectures is this idea of, um, and this comes with humi the humility side of things. Yeah. Always blame yourself first when things are not going according to plan before you look for other causes of why things aren't going up along the trajectory that you were hoping or expecting the patient to go on or blame yourself so what that means is if you interacted you've done something to the patient let's say you're a gp and you've started the patient on a new medication you started the patient on a new medication two weeks ago and now they come to your office and they've got a new symptom before you look for other causes for that symptom Blame yourself, blame the medication that you just added. If you see someone post-op day one and their blood pressure is low, before you blame the anesthetist for not giving enough fluid, blame yourself. Oh, are they bleeding? Yeah. Always blame yourself. Rule that out, even if it's a long shot, rule that out before you entertain other reasons for why the person isn't doing the way, isn't going along that path that you want to go along. I think I mean that's a very clinical thing, but I think it's critical and it, it's extends well beyond surgery and, and probably extends into life as well. Like, you know, if you come home and your partner is upset with you, 
maybe <laughs> think back about what you might have done. <laughs> maybe there's a reason. Maybe yeah. they're having a before you say, oh, someone must have cut you off on your drive home. Is that why you're in a bad mood? Maybe blame yourself first and be like, oh, did I do something, honey? Like, I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe it's maybe there's a, a self-help book in there for me to write when I retire. <laughs> blame yeah. yourself first. <laughs> I love that a lesson that translates um, to beyond medicine and surgery as well. Excellent. So um, this brings us to the end of our conversation today, Navid. I'm so grateful for your time and contribution and would like all to wish you good luck in your own endeavors as well. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'd love to hear what you think. So leave us your comments, questions and thoughts on our Facebook Twitter and Instagram pages at The Timeout Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Music to receive your regular dose of The Timeout. This episode was brought to you by Ganesh, Aiden, Chloe, and Noreen, and we'll see you next time.